welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews really do help new listeners find our show. We also have a new newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast reviews, and some mini essays or rants from me. You can subscribe at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thanks. Today on Tech Done Right, we're going to be talking about legacy code and code abstractions with Michael Feathers. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Michael Feathers. I guess the thing I'm known best for in the industry is the book Working Effectively with Legacy Code, uh, even though I do quite a few other things. But uh, yeah, I tend to be the go-to guy for legacy code problems across the industry. I always think of this as being kind of a be careful what you wish for. That, that you, <laughs> wrote really this, is, yeah. you wrote this book about legacy code and then spent you know a tremendous amount of time staring at sort of face-meltingly bad yeah. projects. Is that is that an accurate perception? It is. But I, the thing that's funny about it is that I can usually tell – I can tell just about everybody that I've seen worse code, right? When you go around the world and you see all sorts of crazy code, you can say, well, you know, it's like I've seen worse. So don't feel like you're, you know, in a completely, you know, unexplored territory. I'm trying to decide whether to give in to the temptation to ask you what the worst thing you've ever seen is or to not. I, I can't without a certain amount of – because of NDA, I can't really sort of like get into the domain. But I've seen some crazy things. I just picture the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark over and over again. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What other things do you do now? What else are you doing? Uh, well, a lot of consulting around legacy code still. You know, people reach out to me because of various problems that they have. So I have like two other interests I'm kind of like digging into quite a bit now. One of them is really how we get in the situation in the first place. You know, what are the things that lead to technical debt within organizations and how do we avoid those? And the other is um, something I've been working on for a while is writing a book about error handling. And then kind of discovering it was a broader topic than that. So I've been kind of like digging into what does it take to go and make software simpler in terms of complexity. And uh, there's often a lot of complexity that comes up, you know, when you're dealing with errors and sometimes like normalizing cases, making sure that bad things can't happen is better than going and dealing with them once they have happened. So in that direction, really. That's funny because I, I definitely see some cases where it's easier to deal with the bad thing than it is to figure out what's causing the bad thing. Yeah. So those all kind of seem related to me, mm -hmm. but maybe we can talk about start with talking about legacy code and, and and talk about how teams can avoid getting into the problem in the first place. So in the legacy code book, you define legacy code as code that doesn't have tests. Mm -hmm. uh, is that still the definition you're comfortable with? Has that definition shifted over time? It's funny because I think it's really more um, it's a definition with a purpose, right? It's like uh, you know, who am I to and actually change the definition of legacy code? You know, essentially. Um, the traditional dictionary definition is it's um, code you got from somebody else or from some time in the past. And um, I came up with that definition of um, legacy code is code without tests to really kind of like underline a particular situation and give people like a, a galvanizing direction to go in with what they're working on. And it came from the observation that at least at that time, the code bases I'd found that had been easiest to work with had extensive test coverage. And it was very easy to go and make changes in them and understand quickly whether you've changed behavior or not. Um, so it seemed like um, it wasn't really a, a quantitative difference. It was a strong qualitative difference between those two different kinds of code bases, once with tests and once without. So I stick by that. And I think it's really a, a good working definition to go and give people a direction to move in when they're um, working in complex code bases. Do you still see that kind of split where the code with tests still tends to be a lot better than the code that doesn't have tests? It's not that it's better. It's just that it's workable. It's something you can oh, do something with, right? Once you have the test coverage, then you're like, okay, well, you know, if I do something to the code, it's going to bite back if it doesn't like it, if I'm changing behavior in a way I didn't really expect to. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, most of the work that I do to help people get tests in place has to be, by necessity, uh, very focused because it takes a long time to get test coverage. So, you know, I help people go and get coverage in the areas where they're about to make changes. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing to go and do, but it's uh, way better if you had it from the beginning. So those are all, a lot of those techniques are covered in the book. Mm -hmm. What prevents teams from getting into trouble in the first place? Or maybe put it the other way, what makes code bases go bad, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's funny about this too. I, I have like a love-hate relationship with the term technical debt. The uh, genesis of it came from uh, Lord Cunningham back in the 1990s, and he was trying to find a way to communicate with um, people in the organization he was in. And he uh, wanted to go and communicate to them how development can be approached differently strategically in order to achieve certain things. And he said, well, we can do the simple thing that gets things done right now, and then we can come back later and fix it. But until we do, it's like we're you know, accumulating debt. So that definition is fine, but I think that people use the term technical debt quite often to go and describe something which is more like entropy in a way, that as you make changes to code, it tends to get a little bit messed up. It tends to become uh, harder to deal with over time. And yeah. um, I think that some of that is really just a natural process. I think that if we're very diligent, we can avoid it. But when you look at the behavioral incentives, quite often ending up with a sprawl in your code base is it's pretty much what the incentives lead us to. Um, I like to kind of like put things this way. It's like it's a, easier to add code to an existing method or to create a new method. Right. Right. It's easier right up until the moment when it would have been easier to create a new method two weeks ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's like we're human. So we basically tend towards the simpler solution and then uh, it catches up with us. Like most things in life, if you're not diligent about certain things, they will catch up with you. Yeah. I mean, it's a technical debt and legacy both seem to be terms that have useful definitions that tended to in casual conversation both be used just as synonyms for bad. Yeah. I think the other thing is that one of the things that I find is that building in the kind of structures that are going to help your code in the long term, building those in at the beginning of the project just feels weird. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like overkill and it feels like, why am I adding all these objects to this like simple workflow? That's true. I, I guess it's funny because you and I are like, we're talking the abstract here without like looking at a particular example. Uh, but it is possible to over-engineer things from the beginning. But sure. I think that... Uh, people's opinion of what is over-engineering changes as they um, um, as they develop in the industry, right? You know, I, I've seen situations where, like, someone's very new and they sit next to someone who's very experienced and the experienced developer goes and says, well, let's do this and this. And then the newbie who has not really been down this path uh, a number of times before looks at this being over-engineering, right? I mean, that can happen. And it really comes down to how many times have you basically sort of, like, painted yourself into a corner, right? That kind of thing. But, you know, having said that, uh, the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, there are situations where you know you're going to have to go and rework something. But doing the simpler thing is good for right now. It's just that at some point you have to make like a, a real shift in your structure. And uh, it's good to kind of know that those things happen as opposed to going and just assuming that you can you know, get the proper structure in place from the very beginning. Quite often that doesn't work. Sometimes it's a case of like if I had known this code base was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of it. Yeah. Is there a way to get around that? Like, what do you see that successful teams do? Is, is there just, are they just better engineers? Do they have a better plan? Do they have better support? Is there a difference between what a successful team looks like over time and what an unsuccessful team looks like over time? Are you talking about their code or the team practices themselves? Like, are there practices that encourage better code? Like, what? Or is it by the time you already see the team, it's too late and you can't tell? <laughs> well, there is that thing that essentially I get called in when people have trouble, right? So it's like I, I can see some good code bases with a strong culture around them, but it's, it's kind of rare relative to the other things <laughs> I see day to day, right? 
I notice that the teams that get better are often ones where the central value is basically making sure that everything is going to work well durationally in the code base. And they kind of like approach it with a degree of care. Um, and they don't really assume they have the answers. They're just constantly looking for, gee, if we do things this way, will this be better than what we've been doing so far? And uh, that's that becomes a topic of uh, conversation across the team. So continual improvement. Yeah, continual improvement. And it's just, it's, I guess continual improvement in the team domain is really more like we have this conversation over and over again. We don't get tired of it because we just know that there's always something to learn. There's always like, you know, we reflect upon the things we've done and seeing how they have developed, you know, over maybe the past year or so uh, or several years. And it's like, okay, well, we tried this. This wasn't working so well. Let's try this. Oh, what happens when we do this? That kind of thing. That's the topic of conversation across the team. What are the first things that you do when a team, when somebody calls you in and says, you know, we have, we think we have a problem. We think you can help us. Well, the first thing for me is listening. You have to go and really just, you know, uh, it's kind of like, uh, I pretty much let people sort of like, um, do a complete brain dump on me, you know, and like just, uh, tell me everything that's going on, what they see as the problem, history of the code base, history of the people, everything along those lines. But, and for the most part, you know, people quite often diagnose very well where the pain points are. You know, um, aside from any objective criteria that you can use, like you know, cyclomatic complexity or commit counts and stuff like that, people know what hurts, right? So yeah, listening first, and then um, it comes down to going and uh, doing my own investigation and understanding: are there things that are missing? Are there things that basically, based upon my experience, I would see that they wouldn't necessarily see that could become problematic in the future? So yeah, that's pretty much the approach. Has the approach to the tools or, or techniques that you've used changed any in the 10 years or 12 years since the book came out? Does it make a difference? Like a language like Ruby that wasn't popular, uh, does that make a difference in your approach? Yeah, there is there's a, a bit of a schism between dynamic and static. You know, there are things you can do in static. You can leverage support from the, um, the compiler in some ways that are not really available to you in dynamically typed languages. And it's true in the book, I didn't really cover dynamically typed languages all that much. So, yeah, I find in dynamically typed languages, I'm more often putting probes in the code to understand what's happening with it, um, as opposed to going and sort of, you know, just relying upon certain constraints that are enforced by the type system. So, yeah, there are things like that. Yeah, dependency breaking techniques are, you know, quite a few. I, I'm a bit more proactive these days about going and getting people to really consider doing enough analysis to be able to delete certain portions of their code. Um, I find that pretty valuable. I, I'm running into teams. Maybe my eyes weren't really open to it you know, uh, earlier on, but teams that basically have a very false view of what their code base is because they're looking at code that isn't really being executed at all. And they don't even realize that. So I'm kind of emphasizing that a bit more these days. Yeah, I find that to, that can be a, a really big problem. I, where I find that that actually also becomes a problem is in stuff that is, at least in web projects, the styles and, and things that are not necessarily code directly can tend to get really cluttered. Nobody wants to delete anything because nobody knows where it's used. Yeah, no, it, it is a thing. And it's, it's really funny about this because it's um, it's like hygiene in a way, right? It's like it's important, but they... The thing is, like you said, in the absence of information, what do you really do? Right? You basically sort of bias towards not breaking anything, and then you, you're in that strange situation. So I, I kind of hope that tooling develops um, a bit more to go and help out with this. I created a project up on my GitHub account called um, Civ, which is like uh, that big you know axe that the Grim Reaper uses, right? It's very simple. It basically goes and codifies something I've done you know, for years with logging. What you do is you place um, calls in your code of a particular format, 
all the call does is basically just sort of like you know, set an attribute on a file in the file system. So when the code executes, you know, essentially that happens. You put these um, these calls in your code, and uh, a command line utility will go and rip through it and basically go ahead and sort of record everything that you've placed in the code as a call. And then periodically you check and find out whether calls have been made in the past month, past week, past day. And uh, with that information, it doesn't necessarily tell you that an area of code is dead, but it gives you a hint about uh, whether it might be. And you can do further investigation to decide whether it's really something that um, should go away. I think that we really need more in the way of like uh, coverage and production to be able to go make assessments like that. Yeah, I, that becomes a real problem, especially like the team you know turns over, nobody remembers. Yeah, There's yeah. no institutional memory. Do you find that to be a, a significant problem, a lack of institutional memory in the kinds of things that you look at? Yeah, definitely. I won't mention the countries involved because I might betray the client in a way. Um, but I remember going and visiting a team in one country years ago, and their code base was just dropped on them from a team in another country. It was a, a recent acquisition, but there was actually nobody to help them uh, make any sense out of the code base at all. And um, essentially then, everything is scary. You have like right. – you don't have – you know, uh, your fear level is is uh, is high because you have no, you know, no clue, no roadmap about what's going on in the code base. I think that there's something bigger in this, and a lot of organizations aren't really paying attention to this yet. But there's a question of like how much turnover can you have in a team and still maintain a degree of institutional memory. You know, some turnover is unplanned, and then there's other cases where you might, because you're aware of these things, choose to turn over, choose to go and actually have people leave one team and join another. But I, I think there must be you know, I don't know how we would actually determine this empirically, but there must be some turnover rate past which it just gets ridiculous. So there can be some turnover that's healthy. It goes and gets different perspectives in your code base. But uh, past a particular rate, you probably fall apart and you end up in that massive fear situation. Yeah, I think it's about context. Like, you know, all of the code was written at a particular time to solve a particular problem. You know, a particular request, like every, every line, no, nobody tripped over their keyboard to put a line of code in the code base. Like everything was there to solve what somebody thought was a problem at some point. Mm-hmm. And either you are that person and you remember it or you don't remember it or you don't have access to that person. And then you don't have a sense of why the code was there, especially if it's something that you can't, you know, that is unclear or you can't tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, what problem it's trying to solve. Like that, that to me is where the turnover becomes a problem. Like you just lose access to the context, the problem that was being solved at the time things were written. I wish I would see more teams doing this, but it's like just making short videos, you know, when you like at the end of an iteration or, you know, periodically and go and say, okay, well, this is what we've done and this is why we, this is what we did and this is why we did it, right? The why is the most important thing, right? Yeah. Imagine, you know, joining a project and you can go back and look at three years worth of videos where basically the developers just briefly within five minutes or so explain what their design choices were for the changes that they had made recently. Um, if you had a history like that going from the beginning of a project, yeah, I can imagine that being extremely galvanizing. I've seen some teams do it, but I haven't really, you know, seen it uh, as a consistent practice. But, you know, video is so cheap and so is memory these days that, you know, so why not stand in front of a camera, you know, for five minutes, you know, periodically explain these things. I could see that that would be really helpful. What do teams do or what specific things happen in the code to create technical debt or things that need to be paid off in the in the longer term? Well, as I said earlier, I think that the incentives in a way are kind of odd. When I say incentives, I mean it's like it's easier to make changes in a bad way than it is to make changes in a good way. Um, but, you know, um, as professionals, we should be able to kind of like jump over that hurdle and make changes in a, in a good way, right? 
I have been kind of like centering on a different idea though recently. And I think that, um, well, let me give you a background, a little story. Um, one of the first companies I worked with in the industry uh, was a biomedical company, FDA regulated. Um, we had extremely long product cycles because software had to wait for hardware. And we wrote some damn good code, but it's like we weren't under any time pressure at all. And there was deliberation over everything. And so we you know, we'd sit in a room and argue about things and just sort of you know come up with uh, a good structure. Now, there were other things that happened that were kind of awkward because of the fact we had long development cycles. It's easy to over-engineer things and stuff like that. But uh, we ended up with some really good code. You know, since then, of course, we've had like Agile and the entire thing that's happened with it. And I think that there's some aspect of technical debt that really comes from like our early history with Agile in a way that we kind of like see a team as being a team of developers. And then there are the business people in another room, right? And we, we talk to them and we go back and forth with them. But I don't think that the communication is rich enough. And I think that's an issue for us. So what I mean by this is like in many teams I visit, it's like the features come from you know, the product team, and they give them to the developers. They get a sense of whether they can be done within the next two weeks or so, and there's estimates involved, and they select what they want, and you go forward with this. It happens usually in a planning meeting. But the thing that's kind of funny is that when you have these kind of meetings, there's never any information about what the readiness is of the code base, right? It's like, how easy will it be to add in this particular feature? And um, it seems like because that discussion is off the table, um, it's easy for things to kind of fall apart with no real recognition, right? The developers may know that some things are kind of falling apart, but they feel responsibility. They feel like, oh, well, you know, it's like I should be more diligent. And since I wasn't diligent, this is kind of falling apart a little bit. But this isn't really something that the people in product need to go and really be aware of. On some teams, that plays out slowly as the developers slowly start giving higher and higher estimates for Yeah, for yeah. And so essentially then, of course, you know... Almost without even noticing it. Yeah, why, why are the estimates taking longer? That kind of thing, right? And I think it's because we feel that sense of responsibility that we feel like, okay, well, I can give the people in product this bad news. What exactly are they supposed to do with it, right? I think this comes back to... You've heard of like um, the law of leaky abstractions? Yes. Yeah, Joel Spolsky? Any non-trivial abstraction leaks. And the example that he goes and uses for this is like if you have like, um, say, a piece of software that's going to operate across a network and you try to go and write the code so that code on either side of the network connection doesn't have to be aware there's a network connection at all. Um, we kind of know that isn't going to work because networks can fail in strange and mysterious ways. So essentially, a lot of the software needs to be aware of the fact that a network is involved. So you can just have like a simple read and write method, but it's like it's going to fail over network in ways that it would never fail if you were on a single processor, for instance. So yeah, the, the, the abstraction kind of leaks. And the reason I bring this up is because this systems principle, like many systems principles, doesn't apply just to software. I think it applies in teams as well, that if we have the abstraction in place that all we have to talk about are features and estimates, that's leaky because of the fact that we have this code base. And if we're not talking about how it's being changed, essentially the leak is going to occur through like, you know, um, it just takes longer to do things, right? The estimates become longer and longer. And the longer. velocity starts dropping. Nobody can quite tell why. Exactly. So the alternative to this is to go and sort of make sure that business understands a simplified view of your architecture and you can go back and forth with them and discuss, okay, well, you want these features. These features that you want are going to impact these three components out of seven, maybe. And it's like, that's great, but understand that this one is at a lower quality level right now or lower readiness level because of some work we did over the past three months. So we can do this. It's going to be tougher going. You know, if you select a different feature, maybe, you know, things won't be impacted quite as much. But 
the the real thing which is nice about this is doing this over a period of time with um, business people because then they start to go and see the impact of their choices and how that affects readiness in the code base. You just can make different choices sometimes. And it's not like going up to you know the business and saying, hey, I need extra time for refactoring or give me right. – Give me weeks to refactor things and things will get better. There's no context in that, right? Right, because that's one of the failure modes, right? Yeah. Everything gets bad and bad and bad. And at some point, you go back to the business owners and you say, oh, well, we need two weeks to do refactoring. What's that? Uh, well, it's not going to change anything, but things are going to get better. Exactly. And it's like you're giving them absolutely no context at all. And I think the, the, the core thing with this is that people in business are using the software. The software has particular characteristics. To the degree that we try to hide that, we can get ourselves in a bit of trouble. When you, when you started talking about how Agile might lead a team into technical debt, that's not where I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to say that Agile leads teams to think in terms of very short sprints mm -hmm. and that that encourages, not, maybe not encourages, but guides teams towards a, a more short-term project solving solve. There's an aspect to that too. I don't know that it's, I, I'd like to see whether there's any kind of measurement, you know, along those things. Like I, we have the experience uh, that I had with working with this biomedical company. And I feel that there is an aspect of technical debt, which is really just an aspect of piecemeal growth. Mm -hmm. I have this feeling that like um, software becomes like biology over time. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, you can look at like a, a sprawling forest and jungle and stuff like that and get that feel in a code base, right? And um, that's a typical thing. I guess what I'd say is that like there are certain teams that I've been on that have been agile where the iteration boundaries become such strong artifacts in and of themselves that teams cut corners to try and hit an iteration boundary. Yeah. Which I think leads to like the loan shark of technical debt, like short term <laughs> high interest technical debt. It's funny because when you go back to the beginnings of agile, it's like there were two different strains. One with Scrum, which is kind of like saying, look, make a commitment to this backlog and uh, do what you can to go and get it done. And with um, extreme programming, the idea was kind of like that there was almost like a moment of truth, maybe a day or two before the end of an iteration where you're able to go and say, well, we can't do this the right way. So we're just not going to have this be part of this isn't going to get done this iteration. And you can schedule for next iteration if you want to, or you can schedule something else. But that Again, that comes down to like a bit of an issue of like balance of power, I think, within a, an organization. If it is split in that kind of like, you know, product versus development uh, way. I also think it's funny that we, we're talking about something like legacy code, which would seem to be on the face of it to be just a code problem, that it doesn't take us very long before we're coming back to team communication, <laughs> interaction with stakeholders, planning structure. You know, all of these communication issues that have really, really strong effects on what code gets produced and how good it is. Yeah. And I, it's, it's an odd thing about this too. I've done some writing recently on something I, I kind of like, I present this point of view as something I call symbiotic um, design practice, symbiotic design. And, um, the idea behind this is that it's like, you know, we, we are the people in an organization and then there's the code, right? And, um, that much like symbiosis in biological systems, you know, we depend upon the code and in a way the code depends upon us. I think that this is kind of like taking the lesson of Conway's law and just kind of like extending it. Um, I think that Conway's law is like just like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to understanding how code and people interact in organization. Conway's law is the idea that the structure of the code reflects the structure of the organization. Yeah, that's a brilliant summary. When you state it that way, it's almost all-encompassing in a way. There are lots of things that impact structure and code that we don't really think about um, all that often. Um, and it's a shame because, you know, uh, we're all about going and trying to write better code and 
perform better solutions um, in a context. And um, that means being hyper aware of all the other things that can kind of end up being reflected in the code that we don't intend. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that even things like I find, for instance, that projects that tend to work, I work on a project that has a very, very strong annual cycle. They have a, they have a particular date every year that they need stuff done by mm -hmm. and they generally don't have enough work to fill the time. So we work on them for like four, there's a fairly intense four month break and then generally very little work is done on the code for eight months. And I find that that structure has a strong effect on the quality of the code. If for no other reason, then it makes it much, much harder to maintain context mm -hmm. over time. So yeah, all kinds, all kinds of things I think can get, can get in the way. A, a story I heard from someone at a very big company I won't name, you know, years ago, um, was kind of fascinating. He was talking about how they kept adding more and more checks to the build, you know, things beyond your typical automated tests. And it actually caused quality to go down. And I thought, oh, what's this about? And they got to the point where actually where a developer could go ahead and check something in or put something into the build and only get notification the next day about whether it was accepted or not. And um, when you think it's like, well, gee, all these additional checks must mean something for quality. They must help out in some way. But the thing that he pointed out with this was that imagine being a developer and you're doing this and it's like you want to start bunching up your commits, right? It's like you have this thing that you're trying to add a feature in the code base and maybe you're doing some refactoring and you kind of put it all in this one big, you know, commit that you're going to go and uh, pass in or just one big submission. How would you really feel about doing a lot of refactoring when you're doing that? Because it would feel so bad to go and actually have your submission um, rejected the next day and realize it was because of refactoring you did as opposed to the thing that you were supposed to be doing, the feature change. Right. So it's kind of like you skimp on the refactoring because it's just, you know, you're risking too much by going and doing it. Yeah, I definitely find that long feedback loops have pretty tough effects on code quality and mm -hmm. then start, I think, much faster than most people realize mm -hmm. that people start to do things like bunch commits or that it starts to affect the way that uh, you code. It's it's a, a longstanding mini rant of mine that Ruby developers that never experienced test-driven development in a small talk system are missing something about test-driven development. Yeah. Because they've never had the experience of this running something and having instantaneous test feedback that, yep. that Ruby and Rails developers are used to thinking that one or two or five or ten minute test feedback is instantaneous and it's just mm -hmm. not and it really actually does make a difference. This is one of my cranky old man rants. Oh no, I have I have that too, and I think it's it's funny because like DHH, you know, we can get into that also, right? It's like uh, you know, historically he doesn't really care for TDD or he's right. He's kind of like, um, I guess, you know, a couple of years ago was making the point that it can be, it can be almost like a religious thing, you know, TDD yeah. to do it. But it's like, you know, I, we're working in Rails, right? If you want to test a model, um, and you do that consistently, you're going to have these, these really, really long, you know, um, test cycles. And it's right, which don't feel long to him, but do feel long to somebody. He actually, uh, it was very interesting because I was just at RailsConf, uh, last week as I taped this. And DHH did the opening keynote and among other things, because he said a bunch of different things, he, he said that he kind of trying to, I want to get the wording right, but what he said was he, he didn't regret saying TDD was a matter of faith, but he regretted making that sound pejorative because a lot of what programmers do is taken on faith. Yeah. Which I thought was a, an interesting way to put it. And I think the other aspect of this too, which, and I don't want to, I don't want to get on his case at all about this because I think it's just, it's not productive and it's like, you know, everybody has like their different you know, experiences within the industry. But I had an experience um, years ago, someone who's prominent in the industry, not him, who was looking at a piece of code in a completely different domain than what he was used to. 
and really just dinging it for the way it was handling errors. And he was saying you would never do things this way, da 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 da. But this guy was a systems programmer, and it's like my my assumption was that he hadn't really done very much application level programming. And so it was a completely different world to him. And so he looked at it and just thought it was foolish, right? And um, that does happen. I mean, it happens with, um, I mean, less so now because more developers are using both static and dynamically typed languages. But it's not uncommon to go and find people who basically worked in static that basically think that dynamically typed languages are the, the height of foolishness and it's impossible to do good work in them. So we are all kind of like our worldview is informed by what we do, right? And um it's kind of rare to have done enough things in the industry where you can kind of trade off many of them and go and recognize, you know, it's like, okay, well, hey, if this looks odd to you, you know, take a look at the context. Is your context different from the people that are doing it, right? I mean, that, that's a hard lesson, but it's also something that it's kind of hard to go and step outside the bowl. And half the time, we don't know whether we're in a particular fishbowl, for instance. Yeah, I definitely remember, you know, being a, at a company that had started off being mostly web developers and had wound up hiring a bunch of enterprise level back-end people. Mm-hmm. That, that they continually, you, you may remember this too, uh, that they continually with some sniping back and forth as to like who were the real programmers and who were just. Yeah. And so much for this culture, right? It's yeah. Just, um, it's bizarre. But uh, that's that's what people do, right? And essentially, you know, we, we try to generalize from our experience. And then the thing is that, you know, we all have different experiences and then you get these clashes. Yes. Not all of us have the experience of, of, of going in and looking at terrible code. All around the world. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that comes with its own issues also. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's like you were, you know, asking me about like the best code I've seen. And it's like, you know, I've seen some good code, but it's also like I'm not the best person to go and sort of, you know, give you that perspective. I used to call this consultant's disease, right? Essentially the yeah. idea that you know, they only call you in, in when there's a problem, right? So I'm I'm assuming in much the same way that if you're a lawyer or a psychologist or a medical doctor medical doctors probably walk around it's like oh everybody's sick and dying you know (laughs) (laughs) but the difference is is that that like i would tell a doctor that there probably are healthy people i I don't know are there healthy code bases there there are like i said i don't i don't get to see too many of them speaking of things that you take on faith there are healthy code bases there are healthy code bases out there yeah and the thing is you know the thing is improvement is a very real thing you know it's like you you can right you know Work in an older code base and and uh, make things better over time. It's definitely yeah, and it's a process. It's not something mm-hmm. you do overnight. Yeah, and 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 trying to do it overnight, I think, causes more problems. Yeah, yeah. The first step, really, with a lot of this is it's really you know it's, it's almost like triage. It's like you know there are always lots of problems, but then the question becomes you know what's hurting the most based upon your product plan. What's going to be impacted over time? Which areas of code that do you need to go and do some you know some work to? Yeah, so those are all questions that come up. And I guess also getting people to realize that if you have a code base that's been around like seven years or something like that, seven plus years, you're not going to be able to go and fix the entire thing, right? It's just kind of, there's always going to be code that you're not going to touch again. That's just the way the statistical distribution of code change is in the industry. So you want to basically get good practices in place going forward and um, deal with things which are really impacting you. Make sure you make things a little bit. It's the Boy Scout campsite rule. You make things, leave things a little bit better than you found it every time. Yeah. And also just recognizing what good is, right? It's really rough when I do this to realize that you're sometimes working with developers who have not really had the experience of a good code base. And then you're like, well, what do we do here? Right. For the most part, the thing I find very valuable to recognize is that even in the um, the most uh, uh, difficult to deal with code base, there are usually always opportunities to go and introduce new code without modifying existing code all that much. 
and you build those pieces up TDD and then um, delegate to them from existing code. So you can have the greenfield experience within an older code base, and that helps. You slowly redirect functionality away from the worst parts. Strangler application is a pattern that's... Uh, yeah, one thing that's funny, I was just thinking, it struck me, um, it, I think this is maybe, I don't think it's specific to long-running Rails code bases, but I bet it's much more endemic to long-running Rails code bases, is you kind of see uh, forensically uh, various fads mm-hmm. pass through the code base. Oh, yeah. This is the year we all like doing form objects, and this mm-hmm. is the year we all did. And some of that comes from a good place. Like that comes from an opportunity, an attempt to try and improve things. Is there a sense in which, like, not sticking to that kind of improvement or trying to change things too fast, is that becomes a problem? Is that something that you see a lot? It's definitely not just in Ruby. Essentially, I saw that in the C community years ago. Java, definitely. I mean, particularly with web technology and Java, there's, you know, been like a, a constant parade of, you know, here's the way we do things now. Let's go and move to the next thing type thing, right? Today, everybody will wear blue. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, there is, there is a wheel of progress, right? With all this stuff and you have to kind of like, um, you know, move along with it. Um, the thing I always kind of hope is that you have, you're able to segment your transitions in such a way that you don't mix two styles in the same place all that often. Because mm-hmm. that can be kind of difficult and jarring. You know, it's, um, I used to have like this uh, question I'd always kind of like ask rhetorically. It's like, how many different directions can your code base support? It's kind of like an archaeological dig. You go back and it's like, ah, people invented fire here. Oh, no, they discovered yeah. the wheel here. Right? And you see all these kind of uh, pieces of older technology. I think the, there, there are two aspects to this. One is basically supporting older technology, um, which can have its costs, and you have to decide whether you're going to rewrite particular pieces because that's problematic. If that isn't the case, then um, you can keep you know older technology and newer technology in production. But my hope is always to go and sort of like um, reduce the jarring nature of that by not mixing them too much. Yeah, one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen in a code base that I ever had to work on for any length of time was a code base that was in JRuby, mm-hmm. and half the database access was through Rails Active Record, and half the database access was through Java Hibernate. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of mixed kind of willy-nilly. And you look at that, and you think, that seems like a poor. Yeah, well, it's essentially that sound, that's, it sounds like everything is terribly opaque. It's very hard to go and tell looking at things, you know, where those things are going to interfere with each other. They both fed off the same database, just going in different directions. Yeah. And it was maddening. It was very, very hard to unravel, too, because things depended on various minor quirks of the different access methods mm-hmm. in ways that were hard to predict. I think it's, it's great with that to actually consider what would it be like to you know, if you were able to go back in time and um, talk to the developers who basically made the decision to do that, and um, it's like, you know, either they're very inexperienced, they don't realize that that's problematic, or they were more experienced, they kind of hoped they were going to get time to fix it. And then you get past a certain point, and then it seems like, well, the amount of time we would invest to go and fix this is just astronomical, so we just have to live with it. Um, that's one of the most fascinating areas for me with legacy code bases is there's this space where you make a reversible decision and then you kind of like transition into a point where it's not that it becomes irreversible, but it becomes something you would never really want to reverse because it's expensive. Right. And um, I think that that transition point is something we don't really know enough about in software development. My experience is that you almost never see that except in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, half of it really comes down to experience also, right? And, it's, and, and um, that's right. Because if you avoid something like that, you never notice. And that's a problem. The other problem with a lot of these techniques mm-hmm. is that if they're done well, they almost never get credit for it because it just seems like things happen easily. Yeah. And, and you only notice the stuff that, that is problematic. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, something that becomes a, a pain point almost sneaks up on you and you don't even realize that it's undoable until it's already passed. That's, that's why, you know, I haven't really like sort of talked to people in depth about this as like a practice or something. But I think that it is beneficial for most organizations to have somebody, somebody else look at the code periodically and sort of like, you don't know what you're missing if you can't see it. And somebody else might be able to go and see where things are problematic in a way. A, a lot of times a team can do this by hiring juniors. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, they won't have the experience, and sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes you need somebody to go, hey, that emperor is missing some clothes. Yep. I don't see it. And there's the, another aspect of this, too. I think it's like a deeper you know, thing in Conway's Law is that um, if you have a stable team working on an area of code, the code can start to go a bit sour without them even realizing it because they see it day to day, right? Right. And uh, getting juniors to come on a team, when they look and if they actually have the, the gumption to be able to go and step up and say, you know, the emperor has no clothes, Right. And that has other, or, other organizational implications. Like you have to have a set, an organization where people feel like they can do that. And yeah. Yeah. And the other half of it too, it's like, it's not just novices, it's getting experts to come in periodically also and sort of give you a, a health check is a, a nice thing to be able to do. But yeah, I, I, I'm really amazed by how this, all this stuff comes down to the, um, socio-technical, right? It's us in conjunction with the code base. And, um, you know, the, the people aspect is so very important and it impacts the code at a deep level. So, uh, Michael, do you have some kind of another kind of example of how Conway's Law plays out in how a team's legacy code base forms? Uh, yeah. One of the things I've been digging into quite a bit recently is error handling in applications. Um, it's one of those areas that people don't really talk about all that much, which is unfortunate because the things that you don't pay attention to um, often become problematic. But I've noticed that quite often when you break a code base into separate components, for instance, what it does is it tends to lead to excessive error handling of the boundaries, particularly in cases where the um, the people creating the code aren't really aware of who's using it and vice versa. Um, it's easy when you're making decisions in a particular area of the code to sort of say, well, you know, I've got this and I don't know what this really means that this thing is. There's something wrong here. And I don't know what that really means to the person who's requesting something from me. Mm-hmm. So they will like throw an exception, for instance, or try to give as much information back to the caller as they can. And that's okay, but it's also, it's not as good as if you really knew who the caller was. Um, so some of this is actually like an aspect of like excessive generality in a code base, right? Yeah. If I'm creating something, I have like 15, 20 different users. Um, I have to basically have some mechanism for dealing with the unexpected that's going to work for all of them. Whereas if I kind of know who's using me, um, I can be in a situation where I can do something much more appropriate to the context. I guess relating this back to Conway's Law, this comes down to just um, if you are breaking your code into separate pieces, how good is the communication between the different groups? The other thing is, uh, you know, how many callers do you have? You know, it's like uh, it's, um, that stat in particular can kind of like affect the structure of your code. But people hardly ever think about that. So what would you recommend that a team does that, that to try and avoid that kind of problem? Some of it really comes down to understanding whether the social structure you put in place, like the team boundaries, are really, whether there's enough communication across them. Also, whether the layering that you have is actually useful. Sometimes people will go and sort of like have a layer in the software, like here's a particular component, here's another component. They basically have that there because they see these things as different domains. That's fine. But maybe if it's only like a single user situation, like this code is being used by just a single user, maybe that boundary isn't really worth anything at all. Uh, so it just really comes down to a lot of reflection upon the problem and the team structure and figuring out whether the team structure is really appropriate for the problem. Okay. 
Well, thanks, Michael, for letting me talk to you. It's been too long, and I should figure out a way not to have it be like five years <laughs> yeah, uh, until the next time we talk. Where can people get a hold of you if they want to read the things that you're writing or, or contact you in other ways? Uh, the easiest, easiest way is Twitter. So my, um, my handle on Twitter is just mfeathers. But also I have a website, r7krecon.com. And um, blog, which is linked through the website, you'll be able to go and get access to the blogs I've been writing recently as well. Great. And you're still working on a, another book, which may come out? It's about error handling and, and reducing conditionality in code. So I'm you know, feverishly working on that right now. Good. Great. Okay. Thank you very much for being on the show. And Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find TableXI on Twitter at TableXI and me at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or subscribe to our new newsletter at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.